Sam Clements and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this show. Today we're joined by writer-director Rebecca Thomas. Hello Rebecca. Hi Sam. Thank you very much for joining us today Rebecca. You're calling in from Los Angeles, is that right? I'm calling in from Los Angeles from the coziness of my bedroom in quarantine while my daughter and husband play somewhere it's nice it's nice and sunny here that's good i don't know if you can see out my window but yeah very very gray as is as is britain i I accept you for who you are britain we go back a little bit in that we both got to work together on your first feature film electric children which was in 2012 that's insane what do you remember from from that electric children time because that was your first feature film it got picked up at festivals like that must have been quite a ride it was such a ride i mean i was God, I was like 27, 28, so it feels like forever ago, my 20s. Who could fathom those times anymore? But yeah, I I was still in grad school at Columbia, and I had made this film after my first two years there and kind of just like stumbled on financing through Kickstarter, through like an angel investor on Kickstarter named Richard Neustadter. And so it was just this whirlwind of making this movie and and from start to finish, it took six months to make it. And then it got into the Berlin Alley and South by Southwest. And so... I just remember feeling like kind of numb to it almost. I was just having a great time. And then it didn't hit me until like years later, like, oh my God, I got to make a feature film. The film itself, I got to rewatch it recently. And like there's so much talent on screen as well as uh, behind the camera. Like this is Julia Garner's first major starring role and and she's everywhere now (laughs) and you've also got people like Billy Zane you've got Rory Culkin like it's an amazing cast I love my cast it was so amazing to work with Julia who we cast two days before because I I couldn't find anybody who I felt could actually be this sort of virginal angelic figure and she's so different on Ozark so it's interesting to see her grow as an actress and she is just a, a a person of amazing depth and talent. So it's it's just exciting to watch her take off. But yeah, she, she came on two days before and just nailed it from start to finish. Did your experience on Electric Children set you up for the things you've been doing now? I, I mean, you know, following your career, obviously, huge fan of your work, but you've done stuff for Netflix, you worked on Stranger Things, you did a whole TV series. Uh, you know, is, is, was that experience on Electric Children sort of formative? It definitely still works as a calling card, for sure. So, you know, like, even if I make something that isn't as good or, you know, like, I, I like doing a lot of pilots and I like to do, I like to be the person who gets to create the look and feel and tone of a show. And a lot of times that's quite tricky when you're working with, like, uh, 12 different executives from different branches of the government that you, it kind of feels like at the end of the day, like you're working with the studio and then you're working with the production company. And to be, again, to be able to sort of like make Electric Children how I wanted it and then sort of take that and push powers that be into doing something creative isn't always the easiest, but it definitely kind of sets you up as like a more of an auteur. So that's what I want to always be going for. Your latest project is, uh, I guess it's a show, but it's on a new app called Queeby. Can you explain to listeners what Queeby is? And then, yeah, then we can talk about uh, when the streetlights go on. Queeby 
It's not a vibrator, as it might sound like. It is a new app from Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman. It's basically an app that is designed to be ingested in sort of like 10-minute chapters or chunks. So it's like short-form entertainment. And my project, When the Street Lights Came On, has sort of a long history to it. It was a feature screenplay on the blacklist. Um, So it feels like everybody in this town has read the original script. And then it was created as a Hulu pilot by Brett Morgan, who I adore, who made Montage of Heck and Jane, which are like some of my favorite documentaries. But it it didn't get picked up at Hulu, but went to Sundance. And I hear was like very good, but totally quite different from what I did. But I was like more than happy to have his backwash, honestly. (laughs) I was like, oh, I'll make whatever Brett Morgan doesn't want to make anymore. So uh, I came on board when Quibi picked it up. And the writers broke down the original two hour screenplay into 10 minutes sort of chapters. So they had to sort of reconfigure some things. And Quibi is definitely like a little bit of like a less is more leaning company. And they definitely felt like they wanted to lean into these cliffhangers, which you'll feel on my show and you'll feel on other shows. And for me, like, I didn't want to make it feel unearned with these cliffhangers or like a little bit too cheesy. The old like dun 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 at the end of each <laughs> at the end of each chapter made me like a little bit cringe. So I I was trying to really work it into the screenwriting and into the performances and into my own sort of like cinematic language so that it felt earned. Um, and now it's all out and you can watch it in its entirety, which is the way, of course, I prefer you to watch it. The cast on on this show is is brilliant like you've got feature film actors you've got amazing tv actors here and a load of newcomers well for quibi especially as a new platform it was essential for them to have some sort of like uh, you know hollywood veterans in the show and of course for like the leads there was like a they wanted a push for some bigger names but for me i thought let's have some some hollywood veterans in the older parts and push for some new fresh faces I just love discovering talent. I love working with new talent because they want to be there on set. We we cast and there were some some bigger actors who wanted to do the parts, but we just really fought for these young up-and-comers because I think you lean in. Like when I look at Chosen, Jacobs or Sophie Thatcher, I like lean in and I say, who are those kids? Like, who are those people who feel like they belong in that universe because you don't know them from any other sort of teen show that was really exciting and it took a little bit of pushing but not much they gave in because you know when you do have a green light you can sweat the clock a little bit and just say (laughs) no I'm I'm not gonna cast that person from that CW show like I'm gonna cast this amazing new actor who is gonna be the next Julia Garner or gonna be you know whoever and because we could get Latifah and and Mark Duplass and, and oh my God, Tony Hale, <laughs> delicious Tony Hale. I will do anything with him. He's so amazing. We could kind of afford to get some new, some new, some new up and comers. The show is designed to watch on a phone. I was really impressed with like how you framed things and it still feels very cinematic. Did you sort of have to change how you, how you worked on set to capture the, these images? Oh, yes. So we did a lot of storyboarding and I've worked very closely with Aaron Morton, who had shot, I think, some commercials, both horizontally and vertically. So he had a system in place. 
And then I would block all the actors and we basically set up, which is like common to have an iPad viewfinder or just like a real viewfinder. But now everybody's just uses an iPad because you can sort of share um, with the director. And so we would set everything up. I would block all the actors, see how it sort of fell off the truck. And then I would realign everything so it fit horizontally and vertical with vertically, which was honestly kind of challenging for the actors at times because it felt so counterintuitive to have to stay in a certain sort of set of parameters. But, you know, I signed on to the project knowing that we were going to have to do this and being in love with the challenge of shooting vertically, even though it, again, was like, if you told me this at the time of Electric Children, that I would be making something on a phone that you would watch vertically, I'd be like, that is blasphemy, disgusting. Shooting vertically is like a challenge for anybody's eye. It's not possible, but you know, like my niece and nephews who are like 16 through 19, I have a plethora of them because I was raised Mormon. And so we, my siblings procreated like bunnies, but just like watching at family reunions, just watching them walk around on their phones, looking at them vertically, I thought, okay, I should do this. And then I thought, you know, like I, in, you know, my previous life, I'm not super religious anymore, but I went on a Mormon mission to Japan and I learned to read vertically and uh, you know, you you look at Japanese art and a lot of it is vertical. And then, of course, I'm a, kind of a manga nerd and vertical paneling in comic books and manga is rad. It's really cool. So I I want to I wanted to exploit that idea of like using the vertical frame, not with, just with the street lights, but also with the physicality of the characters. Like at the end of episode two, there's a scene where uh, Sophie Thatcher's character, Becky, walks into her sister's room because she hears warmth of the sun playing. And her sister is sort of animated there and it's a little bit dreamlike and she turns around. And I really like that scene both horizontally and vertically because you feel the weight of the physical presence of each character. Um, and there's like a little bit of a repeated pan at the beginning of it. And you, I, I like using the format for scenes that were actually like not action scenes, but actually these sort of like intimate scenes. I, I don't know, I liked exploiting that for the narrative. And so I, I, I really leaned into the vertical frame. I almost like it better vertically, but I will always be, you know, lean towards my horizontal roots. Do you watch a lot of movies at home? Right now, I don't watch anything. Like by the, by the time I'm done with the day, get my daughter down for bed, I just read because I really want to be quiet. And then I've been mm -hmm. watching reruns of Seinfeld just because I feel like I need something warm and cozy at night. So I honestly haven't really been watching anything at home. Although we have like, we've pay paid for every single thing there is. I just, I'll start something and I'm like, I don't know. I've, I've been like doing the really dorky thing of like, I reread all of Arthur Miller and I reread all of Chekhov and now I'm doing like Dostoevsky. Like it's, I'm an actual nerd. So I've been, and like my father-in-law said like, my grandma loved A Tree Grew in Brooklyn. And so I was like, okay, I have to read that book. So I've just been reading quite a bit and sort of feeding myself that way. But before the before the quarantine, I did sometimes watch things at home, but I, I prefer going to the theater because I, I love popcorn and I love dark spaces and being by, but being by myself with strangers and hearing how they react to things is like so fascinating to me. In the before time when we could watch movies like that, did um did the film's runtime ever come into your decision making process? Only if I had to like ha be home for my daughter at a certain time, but not really. It 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 didn't really occur to me what the runtime was. I don't mind if it's really really long because it's such a fun 
field trip to go to a movie. But I hope this segs into your 90 minutes <laughs> film festival. <laughs> because there was one movie that was 92 minutes and I was trying to, to slip it by you, but, but we didn't. It's a very strict 90 minute cut off sorry i'm a real stickler for the rules i think we can say you know botrevi was on your shortlist sadly 92 minutes long but listeners you know if you if you want to check it out it's an incredible movie and the thing that sets it over the two minutes is dennis levant's dance number to rhythm of the night at the end so it's a good reason to go over the 90 minutes um but definitely check it out but but that's off the record. So. <laughs> <laughs> when I gave you that homework, how did you decide? Because you sent me a short list of things that you were thinking about. How did you whittle it down to those titles? Well, I was just thinking of movies that I love so much that have stayed with me since the very first viewing experience. And I was thinking of Bo Travai, of course. And then um, I think I, I mentioned The Kid with a Bike by the Dardens, who are some of my favorite filmmakers. And then I was like looking at Paris is Burning by Jenny Livingston, which is like one of my favorite movies ever. And I, I you know, I like I picked that in Beau Travai because I just felt like, oh, I want to do like a female filmmaker because I am one. But then I, I honestly like I can only watch comedy right now because <laughs> I get like it's so easy to like we're living in such a bit of a dark time that I'm like, I just need an outlet. But also like waiting for Guffman was something that I watched a lot with my family growing up and it just feels so funny and fun to just know what's coming next so that I like I feel very secure in having to re-watch that movie in preparation for the podcast so a lot of it was like about protecting my own emotions <laughs> sorry Sam I'm totally self-serving I think that's the best possible reason for picking a movie and mm-hmm. here we go waiting for Guffman From Christopher Guest comes this mockumentary about the small town community of Blaine, Missouri, as they prepare for the 150th anniversary of their town by putting on an elaborate stage play. Hoping to create a triumphant work, they pin their hopes and dreams on an outrageous former New York theatre director who promises to deliver a famous Broadway producer in time for the premiere. What's interesting about that synopsis is that they call it a mockumentary and a lot of his work is described that way. But I was watching an interview with him this morning and he didn't like that term. Um, he did, he did agree. It was like a documentary format, but I don't think he agreed with the term mock, which is actually a concern. I had sort of rewatching it with my like adult 2020 eyes last night. And I was like, Oh, is this homophobic? And I was like, if I have to ask, maybe the answer is yes. But then I sort of went down through these like interviews with him. And I I think he really does love these characters and they are funny. He also like is shining light on every single character in the movie and nobody gets away with anything, no matter who the character is. But the, the... the character of Corky Sinclair is Corky Saint Sinclair is like a little. <laughs> I'm like maybe this just hasn't aged as well as I thought it had. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Sam, or if that's too controversial. Controversial. The film came out in 1997, so it is you know a surprisingly long time ago now. I still think it's the 90s as just the other day, but that's not <laughs> true anymore. And yeah, Chris Ga- Christopher Guest plays you know one of the main characters, Corky Sinclair, who. Yeah, he's, I guess, you know, the description of a New York theatre director, it feels like there's a lot of stereotypes going on there. I know what you mean. The fact we're talking about it probably means there's something which you wouldn't do now. Yeah. But I think it's, I think it's okay. I think I think because he is a fully formed character. That's what I kept telling myself anyway. <laughs> you know, he has ups and downs in the film and I don't know, you're not really laughing at him 
for who he is, but he's got a very strong personality, which creates these moments of humor. And his vision for the show is hilarious. It is really, really funny. And it, it reminded me of like my mom, who, you know, we grew up in Mormonism, but we in Mormon culture, you I don't know if they do it now, but we had lots of like shoestring productions meant for our community. They were called road shows, actually. Um, but just these little plays like about Mormon history, or maybe it was like a musical that was put on with just like the community members. And I think we loved it as a family so much because it reminded us of how dedicated we were and, and were at the time to like, these just like community people getting together to make something that the community loved. And something that I love at the end of Waiting for Guffman is the fact that there's so many shots of the audience being so into it. Like mm. they absolutely love it. Like it's nothing but a success. And of course, because Guffman doesn't come, it's not a success in Quirky's eyes, but he truly created something for these people that they were like really into. I think that at the end of it, I was like, oh, it feels really good because everybody's so dedicated to this town and this place. And it's also like on a broader level, just making fun of America, which is like always a worthy cause in my opinion. <laughs> we, I'm happy that if we're the laughing stock forever because we're kind of a f- nation. But you know, I, I, I also feel very patriotic about my country. So uh, I, I hate to like sound like I hate this place because I, I do like it to a degree. But you know, I, I did feel like the quirky character reminded me of my mom <laughs> and, oh, wow. and she was, and so when I watched it last night I was like this character it, it, the parts that made me feel uncomfortable were like he was like very closeted and like lying about his wife and like that sort of being the punchline like that didn't age very well for me but I think the parts that did feel real were just like this director taking it so seriously and like his monologue when he asked for a hundred thousand dollars to the community and at the end he says he's gonna like go home and like scream into his bed, bite his pillow. Like all of that stuff felt like, oh, that's that truly is how high the stakes are when you're inside of it. Like you do feel like it's the end of the world. So that part of it sort of feels good and still lasts. I think a lot of the comedy comes from him. You know, he's got these... uh off 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 broadway memories but he's in this very small town where there's no professional actors he puts this open casting call out to to fill up the show and everybody who auditions is you know they're the town dentist or they're the travel agents or or you know they, they're known in town for doing another profession and and he gets this i think the film does such a good job of showing people at their work and everybody is introduced in their day jobs at the, the the Dairy Queen or in the travel agents or whatever. And then you see them in that audition scene. And it's so funny. I love that reveal. You know, people are great at dancing. They're maybe terrible at singing, but but they're, they're you know, it's, it's great for us as the audience when when we see that stuff. And it, it took its time, to your point, to really set each character up. I, I had forgotten that you really just sit with each character in their own occupation before even getting to the meat of the production. And and I don't know if films do that anymore. Like they would just be like audition scene five minutes in, you know? So I, I really like that you like what you're saying, like that you saw Eugene Levy like in action. And I don't know, I was like looking at him and like, did they tell him how to do, <laughs> like how to scale a tooth? Because I don't know if I quite bought it at first, but maybe that's part of it. That's like part of that he's not that good or here he's the best in this town and also oh my god he's Eugene is just so brilliant all the time but uh, he's like sort of my favorite part of the movie I think now he wasn't always but I I just like look at him and how 
earnest he is and how he's the underdog and you just like fight for him you hope that they don't reject him and and i just love him in this movie because it's in this documentary style those introductions they're all them addressing the camera they're addressing the documentary crew and and i love that it's such a good way to fast track a relationship with those characters because they're so open to the camera crew they tell them you know how proud they are of their jobs how much they love the town and and you know you know either how good they are or how nervous they are about doing this this show i think it's a really great cinematic device and it you know it lends itself to a a short feature you know it's why the film can leave a huge impact and only be like 80 something minutes long <laughs> yeah you really do get like that instant effect of them addressing you. And I think the care that, and I, I, I know there's like really no script that they go off of, but whatever sort of improv they did, I know Christopher Guest in his interview actually didn't call it improv. He just said like working on the action, like whatever that action d- did provided each character with enough sort of stock phrases that we all sort of come up with when we're like suddenly put on camera like you notice like I don't you're much more versed in like talking to people because you do this but sometimes when I'm doing interviews I'm like I never say that weird phrase like I just said that because it's like something people say you know like why did I say it's not even like part of what I'm thinking but you just like fill up space with words and I felt that in the performances that the characters were feeling the camera on them for the first time and were like just saying whatever you're supposed to say and then in in between the silences and sometimes there would be a phrase or two that would come out that felt like the reality like I I feel like Christopher Guest is great at picking actors who can can do that. There's a thing that I think I got a, a, an entertaining bug from my grandfather, uh, Chaim Perlgut, who was very, very big in the uh, Yiddish uh, theater back in New York. He was in the, the very, the sardonically irreverent Dibbig Schmibbig, I said more ham. We've got Christopher Guest on screen. We've got Eugene Levy. We've got Fred Willard. We've got Catherine O'Hara. We've got mm-hmm. Parker Posey. When was the last time we saw Parker Posey in something? And like Bob Babylon, you know, it's, it's a great, it's such an amazing cast. He's so good, I think, you know, at finding the right people. I guess, especially with improv, it really is about finding the right people. Yeah, I think, you know, the chemistry between the characters, like you feel immediately and the judgment, like when Fred Willard sort of, like is constantly saying these really rude things to Eugene Levy, but like it comes off as really, he's like trying to make a joke out of it and everybody like awkwardly laughs <laughs> to like <laughs> cover up that it was like totally rude. Like I, I think that the chemist, like getting all of those dynamics in each scene must be like so difficult. The director was saying that he feeds like a little earpiece into the camera operator. And so when he's not in a scene, he tells the camera where to go. And that's why more and more he prefers not to be in the movie because he can actually sort of direct it. But I feel like the camera work is so incredible in this movie and the editing is brilliant the way they just like really, really don't let a breath after a a joke happens or after the end of a scene. Like they really, really like Frankenstein each thing so that it's like you cut right out of it into the next scene. And so you're like left wanting to laugh and then you're thrust into a new scene and it it gives you this sort of like, uh, I I don't want to say an awkward pacing, but there's no sort of like, you're just in the next scene. And so it creates this feeling within you as you're watching it, that you're kind of giggling as you're going along. Um, so by the time you get to that final third act, 
you're laughing the whole time because you've created like this sort of like well with inside of yourself of of giggling because of the way it's cut it's it's really really powerful i think you have to be so talented to do something like this you know there's not the fact that no not just the improv but there's so many characters and they all have a great moment on screen the story is I guess it's quite simple, but everybody's got a really complex backstory to deal with and nobody feels feels uh, shortchanged. Yeah, even like the town council and the, the sort of ancestor of Blaine, how she's like so dedicated to making this happen because of her for her, her history. Her, she's such an amazing piece of cast, by the way. But yeah, everybody has a real chance on screen and it, and it feels saturated in the 90 minutes. And I think that's, I think that's what 90 minutes really does to you. And that's sort of what the Quibi format did to me too, was like, I had to fill the seven to 10 minutes with like enough character and drama. And then like, you really just whittle out the fat. So, and, and that doesn't always mean that there's no like moments of breath or silences or introspection because Guffman has them, certainly. Like, you definitely feel that there is a rhythm and a pace to it. Oh, God, though, the Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara scenes about his, like, <laughs> oh my God, his, like, penis surgery or whatever. Like, all of that felt kind of like a really great indictment of, like, the heterosexual American couple, um, which sort of, like, made me feel like, oh, it's probably not homophobic because look at those straight people. <laughs> awful they're the worst <laughs> they're like the worst part of it i mean hilarious but just like the worst they play a, a couple who owned this travel agency and i think it all comes to blows really in that dinner scene in the chinese restaurant mm -hmm. with eugene levy and, and his wife i love a dinner table scene anyway because it's a good way for people to you know in a public forum for people to reveal bits about them but i think that dinner table scene is one of the all-time greats it's such an awkward awkward dinner and eugene levy is so good at he trying to like pass off the awkwardness by complimenting the food mm -hmm. like, oh these egg rolls are they're so good oh and it's just like the way it begins with them saying like food in china is just not as good as Chinese food in America. It's like such a small town thing to say. And Catherine O'Hara being drunk is just like watching her believably be drunk. It's such a hard thing to do. And I just believe every second of her. Although like I, I have like a, a funny memory of her when I was like 24, 25, I just moved to New York and I, I still was like kind of trying to be Mormon. And I went to the opening of Tim Burton's like gallery showing exhibit at the MoMA. I think it was, I, I somehow got an got to be someone's plus one and I was like getting it was all of his like insiders like I remember standing next to next to, like Patty Smith and Johnny Depp and I was like why am I in this like circle of people right now like where like I, I didn't own dresses that weren't like Mormon dresses so I was like wearing my missionary clothes essentially and I was gonna go upstairs to just like look around because I, I had no idea what to do with myself and I was going to get on the elevator and Catherine O'Hara was like the door opened and I stood there and I was like, oh God, it's Catherine O'Hara. And I was a little bit shocked and she's like, get on, get on, get on, get on, get on. And she just started yelling at me to get on. So now when I watch her, like I get like a sort of like primitive, like release of adrenaline of like, oh, I got to get on the elevator. Like, why can't I move? Like, I'm so like starstruck by her. So when I was watching last night, I just kept thinking like, why did I disappoint you, Catherine? Why didn't I get on the elevator faster? But she's, she's honestly, she's honestly a genius. She's so good at playing just borderline over the top you know like you i i felt so invested in her like there's a couple shots where they lingered on her crying in the movie and i just felt like oh my god poor catherine like she's really really upset about this and she's she's just phenomenal as is parker 
who is just like this weird kind of mix of like really sexy, but like she's when she smiles a little bit too big, you're like, I don't know, she's kind of cra- crazy looking. And but she's she's also just like an amazing ballerina who I was realizing in her A Penny for Your Thought. Um, number <laughs> was like doing these amazing kicks like but one of my favorite moments is at the end of that number where she gets into this like typical awkward ballet pose where she's just like doing this stretch over her legs and then Christopher Guest tries to get into the same pose but I, I was just thinking like I wonder if they had to tell her to like be be worse <laughs> <laughs> I reckon we're in love and married Copper penny, the penny that brought you to me. Do you have a favorite scene uh, in this movie? When you were watching it again last night, were you like, oh yes, this scene. Yeah, I love this scene. When I was younger, like in high school, I think I would, you know how like you say lines from movies and expect people to know what they are? I would always sing the song, Nothing Ever Happens on Mars, and then say like, boring, boring, boring. Like when something was boring, I would say that much to everybody's confusion. Like nobody knew what I was talking about. So, and I, and I think like Eugene is just, one of the best parts of this movie like him getting his chance on stage and his wife like laughing and everybody laughing at him as the comic relief is just really funny to me for some reason I do think a penny for your thoughts is really really good because it just it it does such a good job of writing a line of reminding you how how you can really horribly block actors (laughs) like (laughs) like as a director that's really funny it's like watching people walk around when they don't have to it's that's one of my favorite scenes and and just the makeup and the whole production is is fabulous chris guest is so good with music a lot of his films are about musical people i was really pleased to see that in this film for the songs uh christopher guest wrote them with harry shearer and michael mckean who were this is spinal tap i'm like married to a composer so i I'm, I hear all the dorky side of this stuff, but just hearing the way the, the music was constructed and how it just really echoed this sort of like classic musical style, it, that to me is really brilliant. I love when a film is building up to a show. I guess it's a bit like a Muppets movie or, or something like that. You know, we're building up to a show and I, and I think the show in this delivers uh, Red, White and Blaine, the history of this small town um, in, in Missouri. They've done such a good job of these professionals putting on what is supposed to look like an amateur production. Oh, God. It just it, it so reminds me of the ones that I took part in (laughs) and it's like you know when Eugene Levy in rehearsals is like trying to work on his opening entrance but there's like a a, you know one of those flat boards in the way and he's like I I have to come out this way but I have to like do this thing with I'm like sort of moving my my shoulders from left to right like it, it just feels so writing that line of like a little bit making fun of it but actually being so so grounded in what it would really be like when you have no money and you're just doing (laughs) everything yourself and of course like 
the stools, <laughs> the fact that they were yeah. just like the double meaning there. Like, it, I, I think that is so brilliant that it was all about these stools. And that, that like, I, my grandparents lived in a small town called Tokerville, Utah. My other grandparents are from St. George. And there's always like some niche thing that those towns just cling to. Like, this is our thing. And let's go see the museum about this really niche thing. And so the fact that it was uh, like stools was it's just brilliant that's one of my favorite things about uh, america you know a town that really celebrates a thing it's famous for and mm-hmm. seeing like a billboard on the on the road you know pull over for our famous pea soup like, okay i will <laughs> <laughs> you got it or like come to the cheese factory and you're like okay i have to go eat this okay cheese like it's not that good but there's a factory in this place so let's go do it I don't know if you've ever directed a show like this, but did it did it sort of bring back memories of, of bits of your career? Oh, man. Just like really when I was growing up, like I said before, like it brought back those times of like feeling like I was in the wings. Like I have to get my makeup on so I can go play like Jesus, like in the Jesus play, I have to be the unbeliever. Like <laughs> I have to be like mocking, you know, whatever. Like that it brought back those times. And then of course, just like in the idea of doing rehearsals and how how important it feels every time to make something. I mean, now I've participated in things where there's much bigger budgets, so I never want to feel like I'm squandering money. But at the end of the day, like we don't really need any of this stuff to survive. I mean, you and I do maybe because it's our careers, but you know, like if we didn't have TV, we would we could still survive on this planet Earth. Um, although it, it, some of this stuff does lift our spirits, so there is like that whole philosophical side to the conversation. But they're really, you know, there are much more meaningful tasks in life. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you know, being with the right person or if that's mm. not for you, whatever, whatever, family or friends or or whatever your life's purpose is. So uh, it, it is good to be reminded that it's just a production. <laughs> Becca, it's OK. Like, <laughs> Guffman might not show up. It's OK. Where would you recommend people who maybe have now watched Waiting for Guffman go next in Christopher Guest's back catalogue? Hmm, that's a really good question. I think Best in Show is my next sort of favorite Christopher Guest movie. Um, It's partly because of Parker Posey's braces in it, Mm -hmm. which are, you know, a a pretty great piece of, I don't know if that falls into makeup or costume. It's one of those weird crossover things that you have to discuss in a million production meetings, like who is doing the braces? (laughs) But I, I do feel like that that one is a really, really special movie and also in 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 a similar way like i think it's a little uh, people might feel like that's more of a mockumentary but i feel like it mocks less like for some reason i feel more love for you know that community of people who train dogs and show off dogs like to me it feels like a very special niche market that shined this light on it and makes me actually love those dogs because the dogs in the movie are so beautiful There we have it. Waiting for Guffman is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Thank you very much for contributing. Another comedy in the festival is always very welcome. And and another Christopher Guest comedy as well. Wow. <laughs> At our festival, um, you've been to film festivals, you're a film director, you know what's going on. What would you do to theme the theatre where we're going to screen Waiting for Guffman to get the audience in the mood? I definitely feel like uh, an Americana theme. So like red, white and blue, sort of like the final number how they are sort of like wearing all of this like red, white, and blue Uncle Sam um, style 
clothing and I would definitely put up streamers, but I, I do feel like the stools are a really essential part of it. So I was thinking either in the four corners of the theater doing like some giant stools <laughs> with like stool actually written on them because the word is so funny. But I, I, I do think like some footstools for people to put their feet up on would be really nice. And then, you know, like, I don't know if, if you if you go to theaters where there's like drinks, but I think there have to, has to be some some themed drinks for sure. I think this film would be good after a few drinks. And yeah, maybe they could yeah. be named after some of the characters. If you could invite one special guest to, I don't know, maybe do like a Q&A after the film or to introduce it to the audience, who would you want to see on stage? Oh, that's a tough one. After watching many interviews with Christopher Guest, I, I don't think I'd want him to come. I think it'd be too... I'd be just like t- too scared. So I, I I think maybe Eugene Levy. I think Eugene coming. And also like I he has such a fun career. Um, not that none, the, all these other characters do too, but I just, I think Eugene would be really, really fun to interview. Uh, part of me like wants to go with Parker Posey too, because she's just nuts and I love her. And I, I loved her in um, Broken English. Have you seen Broken English? Zoe Cassavetes directed it and it just made me go like, Zoe direct more. She's really good. We can bend the rules. We could have Parker Posey and Eugene Levy on stage. What a what a good lineup. Uh, and do you think this film could or should be longer than ninety minutes? You know, do you do you think actually there's genuinely more story to tell, or or does it use its runtime to to completely get to the end? No, I think you got to the end, and I felt I feel quite like conflicted about the ending because it's such like a sad, real take on what would really happen. But I think that's why I feel like I feel like it's a comedy because you get to see how these people's hopes and dreams really play out and it's 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 quite sad but it also makes me feel like why we're not mocking them because we don't give them a false ending we we like i i love that corky opens this somehow giant shop in new york city with like weird things he's created like dinner of andre dinner with andre action heroes it's like amazing so and very funny but also I don't want to say redemptive because it's really sad, but it does it does feel like something grounded in reality. I think Christopher Guest is so good at you know they are larger than life characters. They they are quite fun, but there's always they, they all have a motivation, they all have a want, and they feel real because of that. So I, I think you know they they're all made with a lot of they're all performed with a lot of love and affection, which is which is good. And it sort of yeah, I guess it sort of balances out the absolute ridiculous humor as well. <laughs> <laughs> but but not so far. I mean, I hate to say this, but like really reminds me of these niche communities which I come from, like where you do end up yelling at each other over something that's just doesn't matter at all <laughs> because you're invested. And, and partly it is because like, you do really want to make your community happy and you do feel the stakes of that when that's all you have. And that's like a lot of people's reality. I mean, it's, it's our reality on, on a level and, and probably from a macro level where we're, we're we could be definitely just as made fun of. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for talking to us today and, and for bringing Waiting to Government in the festival. Where where should people go to check out more of your work? You can check out Electric Children on Amazon Prime if you have it. And then I did a little episode of Stranger Things, which is on Netflix. And then on Hulu, you can check out my pilot for a show called Everything's Gonna Be Okay, which I'm immensely proud of, um, starring Josh Thomas, the love of my life. 
And let's see, what else have I done? And then, yeah, check out When the Streetlights Go On on Quibi. It's free for the first three months. And then I think I think you can just kind of get it for three months and cancel if you don't want to continue with it. But there's there's going to be a reboot of you know, 911. So I'm hanging around for that on Quibi. Wow, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds cool. Yeah. Just to quickly sign off, elevator pitch for When the Streetlights Go On. Oh, it's like the classic story of a small town murder of two teenage girls. A little bit Stand By Me, a little bit Rebecca Thomas. Oh, wow. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, there's definitely a, a great 90s soundtrack that ranges from the Cocteau Twins to Boys to Men. So that alone should draw you to it. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That's a, that's a wrap. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show on your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As an independent podcast, it really helps. And we're also available on 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. Send us a tweet, tag us in a post, let us know what you're watching. We'd love to hear from you. The show was produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Orstwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We are a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. Please head over there and check out the other fantastic podcasts. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Goodbye! member of the Stripped Media Network.